You are now listening to the Girl on Book Action podcast. Now, with more speaking and less reading. This month, we're reviewing Beware the Night, edited by Katerina Sedia. Your reviewers, as usual, are Irene, also known as Doomwench, and Amanda, also known as Wren. So, this month we're reading the short story collection, unfortunately titled Beware the Night, and that's B-E-W-E-R-E, like werewolf, not W-A-R-E, like beware, um, which actually, despite the title, which is monstrous, uh, it's a pretty good collection. Oh, this title is not that bad. Oh, it's so bad. I'm super embarrassed to be seen with this book. I'm sure there are, there are worse titles out there. Maybe. I mean, I've got chicks and chained males on my uh, bookshelf, my hidden bookshelf. Do you remember how embarrassing it was to read Swallowing Darkness? Uh, Yes, this is not as embarrassing as reading Swallowing Darkness, where I, like, had to take the dust jacket off because it was too salacious to take on the bus. I only read it at home because I couldn't take it out anywhere. So, you know, now that we've discussed titles, maybe we should actually review the book. Because now we've established that the title wasn't that bad. I don't think we've established that at all. We've, but... we've established it plenty. Swallowing darkness. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, let's talk about something a bit more tasteful. huh? Uh, um, one of my favorite books and one of my favorite stories in this collection was uh called go home stranger by justin howe who's an author i've actually not really heard of before but i really enjoyed this uh the basic rundown of the plot was there's a vacation spot that a lot of um upper class rich people are hearing about from their friends and friends of friends and they do all of this work to to find the place and get there and it turns out to be just monstrous and horrible and disgusting um but this was uh, very Lovecraftian in a good way, uh, which is actually going to uh, counterpoint one of the other short stories I'm going to talk about that was Lovecraftian in an awful way. We spent a lot of time sort of staring at the abyss of madness and just gross monsters and tentacles and blah. This all happened in about two and a half pages. This was a really short, short, short story. And I think that's something that we don't get a lot of anymore, that real punchy in-and-out short story. And that was something that I liked about this collection a lot, was there was a ton of stories in a fairly short collection. And um, it wasn't uh, overtaken by one giant novella, which seems to be uh, something that happens with a lot of anthologies. Something else I liked about the story was it talked quite a bit about the idea of haunting and viral ideas that are sort of catching, like one person talks about it and the next person talks about it, and you become obsessed with this idea. And um, a couple of things that I've read recently have had that as the major themes, including The Drowning Girl, which is, of course, the new Caitlin R. Kiernan book, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, <clears throat> but that was, it was really well put in this. And again, the world building all happened in such a short amount of time, but it was still really effective. Uh, the language in it was beautiful. It was kind of poetic and had a, sort of a flow to it, but it also managed to stay very linear, so I knew exactly what was going on, whereas some stories that really get into the poetry and the, the beauty of language, you can sometimes lose the story in the um, in the description. So, yeah, this was just really, really good, and it caught me off guard by how good it was. For my first good story, I picked the Aphotic Ghost by Carlos Hernandez. 
which is a, a story by a boy. Hooray! Hooray! Um, so what I liked about this story is that it wasn't totally linear, because linear stories are boring. Um, but it was still easy to follow, so you weren't confused about what the hell was going on. And that all the different sections tell not only of a different time, but a different place. So you had different settings. You had the ocean, or the aphotic zone. You had the mountain, and then you had sea level. And in case you're wondering what aphotic actually means, I looked it up for the purposes of this podcast, because I'm good and I research things. And apparently it's the region of a body of water, most probably the ocean, um, where light stop, like can't penetrate anymore, so whatever photosynthesis can't happen anymore, and you get into the region of like bioluminescent creatures or whatever. It's all very scientific. Anyway, so you switch between these three different zones, and... Um, you have a father, well, first a man who falls in love with a woman, and then he becomes a father. Um, obviously you have the love interest, so there's a love story, there's a family story, and then there's um, shape-shifting, which is great. I like shape-shifting. And to continue our theme of water, obviously there's water, and there's jellyfish, which there were also in um, Go Home Stranger, I believe, at the end. There were jellyfish, creepy jellyfish. Um... So anyway, you move between these three zones, and there's sort of all this relationship stuff mixed in there, and um, then the ending is what really got me, because I can't really make up my mind if it was a happy ending or a little bit sinister, because there's a bunch of characters who shapeshift into these jellyfish called aphotic ghosts, and then the non-shapeshifter character keeps them in a big tank in his apartment forever, or something. Anyway, it seemed like it was kind of a little bit sinister to keep them locked up in a tank instead of letting them go back to the ocean. And that's my two cents about that. The next one that I quite enjoyed was another one uh, with a water theme. It's called Thirst, and it was by Vedana Singh. Um, this one, uh, the sort of the, the point of it is um, a woman in India discovers her sort of dual nature. Um, but what really stuck with me was the sense of yearning. Um, the, the thirst isn't just for water, though it, it does take place in a drought, so you've got all of these things that are just parched and everyone's just, they're on tight water rations and they are very thirsty. And the only real relief she gets from this is taking her son down to the park um, near, uh, near a pool of water. Uh, but the thirst really is for her to fully realize herself and become this half woman half sea creature um being uh, but it's described with this thirst and it was just um it was really poignant and this was another one that had a, just a beautiful use of language and the setting was was very very vibrant like you got the the feeling of of her sort of everyday life at the house and then the nature settings was so much more alive and uh it affected her more and the whole shape-changing thing in this was really sort of, I think, more of a metaphor for trying to find, you know, more meaning in your life and, and that. And this was just, just a sense of yearning was just really well put together in this one. And it's another new author that I 
wasn't wasn't aware of at all. And there were so many authors that I knew quite well in this, I figured that those would be the ones that I turned to. But uh, no, just these, these new authors who are really very good. Continuing our trend of talking about authors that we'd never read before, my second pick is a story called Infested by uh, Nadia Bolkin. And this story surprised me because it's technically about two children, and I don't usually enjoy stories about children. I prefer my protagonists to be adults, because it's easier to relate to them. Um, but this, this story was just, it was creepy, and I had this sort of feeling of being smothered, and it was just really well done, even though it was sort of from the point of view of two kids. And it starts out pretty normal with a family where the mom has just sort of disappeared and the kids are left with their dad who seems like he's slowly becoming unraveled. But as the story continues, it turns out the whole world is sort of unraveling because people are getting cursed and turned into vermin. And you just watch all these adults just fall apart and the whole world falls apart and there's just rats and weasels and bats and mangy cats, just animals everywhere because I guess everybody's going overboard with these curses. And there's these two kids at the center of it and they're trying to make sense of this world and it's just horrible and oppressive and creepy. And then the whole time you have to wonder, are they just making up this like world to make sense of their mom leaving? Which is sort of, you know... You could maybe read it that way, but I prefer to read it as actually the world is being turned into vermin and it's horrible and sort of apocalyptic, basically. But it was really, at the end, very, very creepy. So I also have a runner-up for um, some of the, the, the story that I quite liked. And this is another real short one called um, The Fowler's Daughter. And it was written by Michelle Munsler, which I'm almost certainly saying incorrectly, but I couldn't find a pronunciation guide. Um, this one deals with uh, a daughter learning to cope with her mother's otherworldly nature, or uh, in this case, not being able to cope with it. Uh, she uh, returns to her father's house, and her father is quite ill, and she's taking care of him. And there, her mother is um, a swan. Um, a half a swan, half a woman, and she can't help, she can't handle that her mother has to follow the call of nature instead of staying home and taking care of her father. Um, <clears throat> and what's particularly interesting is that the daughter in this uh, feels the same pull that her mother does, but she fights it sort of with force of will and by focusing on cityscapes, and that's her home, and the uh, the human world is her home, not this animalistic world. Um, and this is one that's really, it's mean-spirited and unredemptive. You keep expecting, okay, well, they're going to resolve their differences and things are going to turn out all right, and they really don't. Um, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And I, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So my runner-up for this collection is called The Thief of Precious Things by A.C. Wise. Uh, what I liked about this is there was an immense amount of world-building in a fairly short story. Um, you really got a sense of uh, this sort of, there's a world that has sort of been through a lot of conflict, and it's sort of partially maybe been destroyed, and there's still conflict between the fox girls, 
the crowmen and regular humans. And, um, yeah, it was just a really good way to start the anthology. It was the first story in this uh, book. And, yeah, the more I think about it, the more I think about the fact that it has multiple layers to the meaning of the title. Like, the basic plot is that the crowmen hire the fox girl to steal a thing from the humans. But as she sort of moves through the story, she steals a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, and not just stuff, but she basically steals a woman's name. And, you know, she sort of steals a person's happiness. And she doesn't really mean to. She steals the crow nature as she goes through. And so so she's not just stealing this one object. She's stealing a whole bunch of stuff. And I like that that sort of worked into the title. And, yeah, it was just a really good story and a pretty strong beginning to the anthology, I thought. Well, the worst short story in this collection by a long shot is The Coldest Game. But uh, after we had a bit of a fight about who would get to tear it to pieces, we decided we'd discuss it further in uh, the discussion section later on. So right now we're just going to tell you what our runners-up for the uh, the worst short story was. Um, <clears throat> and mine was Grotesque Angels by Gwendolyn Clare. Oh, this was one about mystical were-detective solving... Yeah, <clears throat> so in a collection that had so many different ideas and different writing styles and different takes on the whole um, were-animal theme, this one was just tedious. Um, it was a bad Lovecraft pastiche, or at least the, the main monster was. It, did, <laughs> it didn't even do the things that I hated about Lovecraft. It just took a Lovecraft monster and plopped it in this mishmash of themes and cliches that we get in every other supernatural story ever. It also had um, a theme that I hate, which is changing your very nature for someone that you're that someone that you're in love with, or even could possibly maybe one day be in love with. It's worth it for our main character to give up her connection to the city and her connection to her where nature to be able to be with a guy and she thinks that that's a-okay. Oh, God. It was just awful. My runner-up for bad story was Tusk and Skin by Marissa Lingen, which was, um, boring. And by that I mean, um, boring. Have I mentioned it was boring? Um, so it's basically the story of like a, a sort of an environmental journalist going to Iceland to hang out with a couple who is studying walruses walry walruses and um yeah so he takes some pictures he figures out that the couple's servant is um a shapeshifter and they took away her skin and then he she gets her skin back and she leaves and um, then she convinces all her other shapeshifter walrus friends and the regular walruses to kill the two researchers by, like, drowning them or squishing them. I'm not really sure. I'm pretty sure it was meant to be sort of horrifying to see this sort of herd of walruses kill these two people, but um, mostly it was just boring. I suspect it's meant to be some sort of commentary on... um 
how humans destroy animal nature by studying animals or something like that. But um, at this point, that sort of story seems like it's um, a little bit late, maybe. Also, did I mention it was boring? And now for an erudite discussion. As we promised, uh, we're now going to talk a little bit about the worst short story in this collection, by a long shot. One of the worst short stories I've actually read in quite a while. Uh, it's called The Coldest Game, and it's by Maria V. Snyder. So, a basic plot synopsis is that um, our protagonist um, is a meteorologist, and she's walking to her meteorology assignment first thing in the morning. She's attacked by some sort of animal, and she wakes up in the ER, and there's a very handsome man there who saved her life. And then we fast forward, he's a famous hockey player for her university, blah, blah, blah. They get into a relationship, and she goes from being totally depressed because her sister has died to being kind of happy and totally in love. Right. Do we see a problem yet? No. Okay. Uh, so, we're... Turns out that he's some sort of were tiger, and um, by biting her, he has taken a uh, part of her soul. That sounds nice too, doesn't it? So because he's taken part of her soul, they are now in love. She's pretty much okay with this because it means she's not depressed anymore. <sighs> Keep going. I don't want to. Keep summarizing the story. Tell the people what happens next. Um, okay, so the coach of the ice hockey team has infected his entire team with were-tigerness, which means that they are soulless. I guess. I guess. And it also means that they're now winning, because apparently in order to win at hockey, you need to not have a soul. I guess. Yeah, um... Anyway, so to skip ahead a bunch, past a whole bunch of boring, blah, 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 he's left me because he's away at a away game, blah, 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 yada, yada, boring. Uh, in the end, it turns out that where tiger curse can only be broken by killing another person, but because he only halfway killed her, he now has half her soul so he can act like a human being again. So in order to fix the rest of the team and keep them from killing our main character and her boyfriend, they decide to play matchmaker and get those guys to bite girls. Do I have to keep going? Yes, you have to finish it. No, tell I don't the want to. how it ends. No, I don't want to. You, you have to tell the people how it ends. Okay, the end is that, hooray, they find a bunch of girls, sort of voluntarily. Not all of them are voluntary. Sort of, most of them are volunteers. We'll get to the whole not volunteering thing later. This is a synopsis, not a judgment. Um, so, I judge. Well, maybe you should be synopsizing then. Fine then, maybe I will. Yeah, maybe you should. Fine then. So after they rape bite a bunch of the, uh, the friends and girlfriends of the were-tigers, they turn on the coach, uh, but instead of, like, you know, riding him out on a rail or something, they put some child pornography on his computer and uh, alert the authorities that he's got child pornography on his computer. And everyone lives happily ever after because the half-cursed 
where guys are still the best hockey players ever, and the girls are in love with them forever. Against their will. The end. And what an end it is. Oh, good God. When I first read this anthology a few months ago, this story had me livid. I was just livid with rage. And I, I, I warned Amanda, but I didn't tell her which story it was. And I was totally right. She's also livid with rage. I was part of the way through and I'm like, oh, these are all pretty good. This, uh, this Sadia chick knows what she's doing. This is a nice collection with uh, some different types of stuff. Oh my god, I'm so mad. How, how does a story like this even get published? I don't know. It felt like it took a lot of its cues from, um, a lot of the young adult fiction that uh, everyone's trashing right now um, because it's giving a terrible message to women, uh, just like fiction has since time immemorial. But um, this had that sort of twilighty feel where it's like, well, if he loves me, it's okay. Yeah, I love that part at the end where Lexa, the girl, sort of goes, yeah, but what if they're not, you know, actually compatible as a couple? And, um... His response is, oh, it won't really matter because once the guys bite them, you know, they'll be in love and they'll be soulmates. They won't remember that they're not actually compatible as a couple. That's great. And because the uh, the, the main character and the, the guy, because they're fine with it, they assume everyone else will be fine with it too. I assume that based on this curse, they won't even realize that there's something to not be fine with. Oh, that makes it, that makes it even better. That makes it even better. I just, oh, it just drove me crazy, just crazy. And I mean, this whole thing about where he bites her, it's, it's like metaphysical rape. And then they sort of do this to all these other chicks. And if I could sort of see it being okay if, you know, he was uh, all bloodlusty, out of control, and he and he killed this, or half-killed this girl, and they found out that this was a side effect of the curse, um, where it was like, well, there's nothing we can really do about it now, it's too late. But then to force that on other people? It's just, just horrible. It, it's horrible. And there's a sequence in this where the police ask Lexa, okay, well, here's a dog that we found. Is this the dog that attacked you? And at this point, she knew it wasn't the dog. She knew it was her, like, rapist boyfriend. And she said, oh, yes, it was the dog. So they killed a dog as well. Yeah, I just, that had me livid, too. It's like, does it really matter if the cops are out there looking for a dog when... They're were-tigers anyway? Yeah, so she helps her psycho boyfriend kill an animal. Hooray! And then they metaphysically rape a whole bunch of chicks. And, uh, not physically rape, but definitely physically assault these women, too, because they have to be, you know, half-killed for this to work. Or at least exchange some blood and saliva. I think only one chick, actually, she volunteers to do it. Yeah, and that would be, you know, if you said to someone, hey, listen, your boyfriend who you're in love with has this thing, do you choose to do this? And you say yes, valid life choice. But having someone pounce on you and bite you into love, that's fucked up. Yeah, um, what happened to free will? Don't don't women have that anymore? Is 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 finding your soulmate a reason to give up your free will? Yes, yes it is. 
I'm not sure you're right about that. <laughs> and that was um, a, a problem that I had with uh, the, the, my, my runner-up for Bad Story as well, where this girl was uh, this sort of creature, and um, she liked being a creature. She liked being around other creature monster things, but she was willing to give up that part of her life, which was all of her life, to be with this normal human guy. I just, I don't think that someone that you're supposed to, that someone that you, you really feel connected to should make you less what than what you are. No, I think someone you're really connected to should make you more than what you are. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Yeah, like the, the, the two of you become greater for each other's company, but... Uh, you grow as people or as monsters. Yeah, but it did not get that feeling in these stories. Not at all. And something that's actually totally unrelated to the plot, The Coldest Game, I think, had the most typos out of any story in this book. And they were all bad typos, like writing withdraw instead of withdrawal types typos. Like, it drove me crazy. There were some typos, too, where it was like I couldn't figure out what the sentence was supposed to be. Like, it wasn't just an easy typo, like a a letter misplaced or something. It was I could genuinely did not know what they were saying. (laughs) Yeah, so not only is the plot terrible and juvenile and sets feminism back, like, a hundred years, it's also not even well written. No, it was really bad. It was so bad. Let's uh, let's talk about something else. Yeah, let's. I, before I, I don't I, think I can talk about this anymore. No, I, 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 I've already had to read it twice. I had to read it twice, twice. <laughs> I, and this, this really was a good collection. I don't want people to get the the wrong impression. This was just an awful story. Yeah, and I mean, even the bad stories that we highlighted weren't bad like this. They were just sort of boring compared to the other pieces but though this was just oh so yeah. much rage um, another one uh that was actually quite good uh that we could we didn't really like both of us talked about how much we enjoyed it but we didn't really want to give it best or runner up um was the poison eaters by Holly Black uh Holly Black I've read some of her other works and she is I mean it's no big surprise that she's quite good. Um, this was a story about someone turning these women into um, poisoners, basically just by feeding them poison food so that their very touch would be poisonous so that they could kill their assassination targets without anyone figuring out what the deal was. Um, it was re- it was really good. It was beautiful and sad, and it felt in tone like it felt uh, like it was part of the collection, but it wasn't really about werewolves at all. Or shape changers, right? Because not all the creepy crawlies in this are werewolves, right? But there was no real shape-shifting? No, it was, I mean, I guess they sort of transformed from regular girls into these poison creatures, but they didn't change shape. No, and it was more like they were the walking dead Right, because they were dead girls who were then filled with poison, is my understanding. Yeah, or live girls who were had so much poison in them that they became poisonous, but they weren't really were creatures like monsters or anything like that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I love this story. I love the mood. I love the language. I love the plot. But it felt really out of place in a collection about shapeshifters. It felt more like it should have been in Songs of Love and Death. This would have been an excellent collection uh, story for Songs of Love and Death because it had all of that stuff because these girls uh, did fall in love with their intended victims and they killed them and then they themselves died. That's perfect. Yep, but as far as shapeshifting goes, it's totally not the right collection. Although I, I'm glad it was in here because that means I got to read it and it was really, really good. Yeah, I would have regretted having not not having read this, but uh, yeah, it was it was weird that it was it was a, it was an odd choice to put in this. It was, it really, really was. So something else that I quite liked about the collection was. Um, the strong use of metaphor as the shapeshifters and the werewolves using that to describe other things. And uh, Sadia talks in the introduction about how she had done a previous anthology uh, that was about werewolves and the, the metaphor of uh, werewolves for being the, the, the beast that's inside us all being covered by civilization and how she thought that might be sort of all you could really talk about as far as uh, with werewolf themes and how surprised she was by um, what she came up with for this collection. Um, it was just, it was really strong. It was a really strong use of it. Like in Thirst, as I, as I was talking about earlier, we have this woman who is, she really wants to be free and have more of a life and become more. And, that yearning is this whole werewolf thing, or were water snake in this case, but werewolf, whatever. Um, and it was just, it was just beautifully expressed in sort of a pulpy type of idea. And another way that these metaphors seem to come out in a couple of the stories is through a connection to artists. There was one story called um, A Song to the Moon by uh, Richard Bowes which is about actors who are shapeshifters. And it's sort of this, like, bacchanal-feeling story about these shapeshifters on stage. And then there's another one called Blue Joe by uh, Stephanie Burgess, which is about a jazz mu musician who has shapeshifters, in, like, as his father is a shapeshifter. So there's this connection to art and performance with the shapeshifting, too, which was interesting, I thought. Yeah, and you don't see a ton of that sort of connection. I mean, it makes sense with that whole bacchanalia where you've got this passion and this desire and that does connect to werewolves and, and things. It does connect to art, but it's not a connection that you usually see in, in fiction. Yeah, or at least not sort of explicitly stated. It might sort of be an undertone, but it's never sort of the point of the story necessarily. And I uh, I like that. I like that we're using these pulp ideas and horror ideas um, that we're all familiar with to express these um, deeper emotions. I think, yeah, and I think it works really well. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm studying monsters. Yeah, because they they're, it's, a, it's a good way to express these very human feelings, these human but monstrous feelings. Uh, and that's one of the things that I liked so much about the Fowler's Daughter, the one I was talking about earlier, is you use this werewolf thing to describe this disconnect between a mother and a daughter and the um, the bitterness there. Mm -hmm. 
but to take it to a, a different level, a higher, like a, a more poignant level, because you can add the supernatural element. <laughs> Another one here that actually I'm pretty sure went over my head was, uh, I enjoyed it, uh, by Karen Warren, The Gaze of the Nine Waterfall, um, where we're following a girl um, who her job is to collect these monster dogs for people, and she sells them. And she goes through this sort of mystical rite, and I, it was really cool, but I don't know what was going on there. Yeah, I I remember really, really enjoying that story, but it was a little bit mystically, especially towards the end. I think what I took away from it is that quite possibly she sacrificed her friend in order to capture this dog so she could make a profit. Yeah, I... I kind of got that, but I'm not sure. I th- felt like there were some uh, undertones there that I just was not picking up. And wasn't there a dead husband or like a husband who was dead who she claimed was alive? And I that sort of played paralyzed. into that too? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it seems like it was a story about this one woman sacrificing whatever just to get her job done. But it was it was, it was good anyway. It stuck with me. The fact that I liked it and it was really sort of beyond my understanding maybe yeah it was definitely definitely memorable um i was surprised actually um because nick um uh, i'm gonna say this wrong nick mamitas uh had a collection have one in this collection and i have really enjoyed him he's been popping up in a lot of the collections we've been reading and i've, I've really enjoyed him but i did not care for nothing but flowers uh in this in this collection you know i don't even remember nothing but flowers um, well, this one, it was the, the one where they're out in the, um, out in the wilderness, um, trying to go back to nature kind of thing. Oh, the back to nature story. Yes, I remember this now, where they're sort of, they turn into some sort of strange terrorists, isn't that it? Yeah, they're sort of eco-terrorists, um, like, that are trying to become more animalistic rather than, like, people, because they think that's more natural. Yeah, for some reason in this book, the titles don't connect me to the stories. Like, I have to go and I have to flip to it and see and go, oh, these are the characters, right? I remember the stories. But, I mean, I liked the story about going out into nature and and trying to become more animalistic, but I felt like turning that into a werewolf story sort of cheapened the, um, sort of cheapened that. Yeah. Because it just makes it kind of easy. Like, oh yeah, well then they turned, they turned, and she turned into a werewolf, and she was back to nature just the way she wanted. Uh, I didn't like that. Yeah, that story. I like the back to nature part. I don't know that I like the eco terrorism aspect of it. It's like, why can't they just go back to nature? Do they really have to be terrorists too? It just felt like a bit of a mishmash. Like, uh, they're first they're going back to nature, then they're eco-terrorists, and then she's a werewolf, I guess? I don't know. It didn't hold together very well. I can see that. So, to sort of close out our discussion of this book, because obviously we can't talk about every single story, I think we should talk about Moonlight and Bleach by Sandra MacDonald, which was sort of a funny story about a were-maid. Yeah, this actually um, was a genuinely funny story. A lot of the times we'll get these funny stories thrown into serious collections that just sort of fall flat and are not funny, and you just have to sort of get through. This was not one of them. 
Yeah, no, it's basically, it's a story about a woman who, on the full moon, becomes a maid, and she, like, obsessively cleans on those nights. Like, she cannot stop cleaning. And how this sort of complicates her life, because she's not, you know, really a normal person. She's a were-maid. No, and I like the I like the idea that it wasn't like she got dressed up in a maid's outfit. No, it was the uh, just like a werewolf's fur burst forth, her polyester and like uh, uh, washing gloves burst forth from her skin, and she must clean. Yeah, it was amazing and funny, and somehow in all this like amazing funniness, it it also included a love story, which didn't feel forced or anything. It just you know, it was really well done. It was, and it's it's hard to get a believable love story in such a short space of time. Because I just I have trouble believing that people fall in love in two pages. I just don't buy it. Yeah, but this sort of you know it it sort of worked, and um, I just really love the compulsion to clean, <laughs> and the way she tries to sort of cope with her you know wear made nature, where she tries to set it up that. She has, like, places where she's allowed to clean on those nights. But only those nights. <laughs> she's worried she's going to end up, like, cleaning a bus stop by or an, accident. Or an alley or something. I think there's a section where she talks about, you know, cleaning an alley full of puke and stuff. Because she can't help herself. So, yeah, that was... It was really funny and really well done. No, I, I enjoyed that. So, strangely enough, I think we've got some mail this week. We do indeed. Would you like me to read it to you? Uh, please, read me the mail. I think it's from a male. It is. It's, it's from a male person writing to us girls. And this is what it says. Hi, it's me again, the English variety of the Gavs. You recently mentioned over the last two podcasts about starting to look at the magical land of books written by men that aren't Terry Pratchett if I may offer some suggestions for consideration. You've covered some anthology books, so one of my favorite writers could be a place to start. Robert Shearman? Sherman? He's wrote a few collections, amongst which is Love Song for the Shy and Cynical, which I've only just started. I suck at reading books, by the way. He's also wrote some of my favorite Doctor Who episodes for Big Finish 2. He often takes somewhat of a weird, surreal turn with his stories. Anyway, this is me signing out. There you have it. Our mail. Hooray, we have mail. <laughs> we have mail. I like getting mail. It's a pleasant surprise. It's always a pleasant surprise. So, I've looked up your suggestion. I really was interested in the Robert Sherman book because I like the title. Love's Song for the Shy and Cynical really sort of caught me. So I went to the you know Canadian bookseller website. And, um, they don't seem to know who he is. I cry foul. I say that Gav made this writer up. Yeah, so, um, maybe I should check again in, like, a month or two. Maybe it's because Canadian bookseller sites are slow or something. But, yeah, they didn't have anything by Robert Sherman there. So I was disappointed. I'm going to have a look here uh, at American sites to see if maybe it's here. Because it does sound like something we'd like. We like weird and surreal, and we like um, shy and cynical. That that sounds like all things we'd like. Yeah, so um, thanks for pointing out a thing I probably can't have. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Gav. 
<laughs> so, and actually, we will be um, doing some books just by men next month. Uh, yes, we because... will. <laughs> because we've challenged ourselves. Um, and we've been talking about maybe reading Nation and one of uh, Terry Pratchett's other books that uh, aren't in the Discworld cycle because it's too much for Irene to read every Discworld novel ever. Yeah, um, I do still have a life to have. I can't read every Discworld world ever. I think that you can. No! I think you should get to it, hop to it, chop chop. Right, you send me a box full of Discworld books and I'll add them to my ever-growing pile of things to one day read. And now, I think we've stolen about enough of your reading time. We'll be again with you at the last week of April, or maybe the, the first week of May if we're feeling lazy, where we'll be discussing The Monk and The Master and Margarita. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us, we like email, at uh, girlonbookaction at gmail.com, or you can post comments on our blog, girlonbookaction.blogspot.com. <laughs>